Well, hello, Bible Love listeners. I am so glad you are with us today. You're in for a real treat, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Alan is not with us, as happens in parish ministry. He was called out to be with the parishioner. So we will start our time in prayer. And as we've been doing in this um, summer get, summer series, we've been praying the prayer from the Book of Common Prayer for those who influence public opinion. So Lord be with you. And also with you. Almighty God, you proclaim your truth in every age by many voices. Direct in our time, we pray those who speak where many listen and write what many read, Mm. that they may do their part in making the heart of this people wise, its mind sound, and its will righteous to the honor of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Listeners, okay, so today you have the Reverend Aaron Jean Ward, who was in seminary with me at the Seminary of the Southwest, by far the best seminary, don't you think, Aaron? Oh, by far. Uh, and she, Aaron, I think you were a senior when in my first year, but one of the things I remember very vividly about Aaron is when I was looking at seminaries, she was my sort of host and took me around and made sure I got good Texas food and made me feel very, very comfortable and was one of the reasons I felt very called to go to seminary at the Seminary of the Southwest. So, and we're both Alabama girls and just really grateful for you, Aaron, and your work and your ministry. And we're going to talk about what you're doing, but I'm really glad you're here. Yes, I think the Deep South kindred, you know, the the Deep South blood always matters, and we know our people, and so um, it's been such a joy to know you. I did the math the other day, or someone did the math for me, and I started seminary like 14 years ago, and I'm in like my 11th year as a priest, or coming up on that, which feels mind-boggling to me, but I'd like to thank God for a decade of friendship with you, which is really hard to even think about. Yeah, I'm about to do nine, be at nine in May. So we're on the same path. And you were a baby when you went into seminary. You were a baby. I was 34. How old were you? 21? I started seminary at 22 because I was ordained the December before graduation. So I was ordained a deacon at 24 and then a priest at 25, which is canonically the youngest a person can be to go into ministry, right? Um, so yeah, so I was first like career, like just got out of undergrad and went directly into my master's program. Amazing. I love it. So let me tell you a little bit about Erin, and then she's going to talk about herself as well. But obviously, Erin is an Episcopal priest. She is an author. She is a coach. And something that's very exciting that has just happened, and um, you'll hear this, uh, we're going to link all of Erin's stuff. But what we really want you to do, because I have read it, and it is amazing, is her new book, Sober Spirituality, that is available now. And y'all, it's awesome. Erin is so vulnerable and shares her story. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So Erin, let's start from the beginning. You got called into ministry at a very young age. And 
became a priest. And tell me what you did those first couple of years of being a priest. Yeah, I mean, to give a little bit of the overarching view, which, you know, you've read the book, you know that my priesthood and my sobriety are actually quite knit together. And so it's funny when people ask me that question, because I always inevitably then told the sobriety story as well, because my ministry and my sobriety are obviously really knit. Um, You know, I left seminary, I went to Waco, Texas, and I was the college minister at the Baylor Student Center. And I also worked at St. Paul's downtown and um, really, really loved my ministry there. Um, as far as drinking, I think drinking is often social until it's not. Right. And there were many years when it was just quite social. Um, or we had a lot of fun in seminary, didn't we? Eric? We had a lot of fun in seminary. Drank more than we should have, for sure. Exactly. And then what often happens is like you get out of like seminary or a grad program, and then you're like, oh, I have like a job. I need to like right. slow down. And I would say that definitely happened for me, right? Like as the norms of your life change, the way that you engage with substances can change, or at least for me, it did. And so back into a really social state of drinking, but trauma is also something that is acting on me in, in this story. And um, I decide to leave Waco. I become associate rector for Christian formation at Transfiguration in Dallas. It's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that context, trauma is also happening. And what's happening is that unconsciously, my drinking is exacerbating. Um, I am going from being what I would call like a social drinker to being a person who gets home after a long day of work and cracks open a bottle of wine, right? Right. Um, And I share that because we often don't say consciously, I'm going to drink at my stress. I'm stressed out. Ergo, I'm going to open a bottle of wine. And yet we're still subconsciously taking on patterns of alcohol becoming a coping mechanism. Right. And so slowly this is becoming... Let me me interrupt you there because don't you think we all have those patterns, whether it's wine or smoking or overeating or whatever it doesn't alcoholism doesn't have to look like someone who's walking down the street and is drunk all day right yes and and it doesn't even have to be what we would term alcoholism right right? um i personally struggled with the fact that i would like look up the definition of alcoholism it didn't fit and so I would have moments where I was like, well, I guess I'm fine. You know, like it, because that normative way of understanding a problematic relationship with alcohol didn't fit with my story. And so any of those boundaries or definitions we try to put around it can, can serve to actually be detrimental. They can also be helpful because they can illuminate things for us. But, you know, my career was taking off. Like I was in this really blowing and going parish in Dallas, Texas, you know, like I was not hitting any level of rock bottom. And when you're looking for certain factors to say, oh, that'll be the time when I know there's a problem. You can actually stay inside the patterns that are challenging. And one of the other things about it is, you know, there were seasons of my life where my drinking was normative and also toxic. Yeah. So what do you do when you're in a situation where I'm drinking like everyone else in this room? There is nothing unique or different about me. And it's also beginning to feel like self-harm. 
Yeah. And let me ask you this, Aaron, because I think even though we as priests know that we're really human, you know, and we make mistakes all the time, God knows I make one many every day. Um, I do think people sort of put us up on this pedestal, like they can do no harm, they can do, do no wrong. And so one of the things that I think is so brave about your story and the courage that you have is that you are saying, yes, I'm a priest, but also I'm a human being. And I was drinking too much, you know, just like the person sitting in the pew might be feeling that as well. Yes. And, and I think we're a stronger church when we learn that we're actually in this together. Um, the, the pedestal is detrimental to the people and the priest. Absolutely. It's dementia. It's detrimental to the entire body of Christ. Um, you know, one of the best pieces of feedback I got that I, you know, I'm just still deeply grateful for is that, you know, when I really started digging into my Brené Brown certification, I really changed how I preached. And I started to preach from a place of, hey, y'all, like, I'm kind of struggling with this thing in my life. And gosh, when I was reading the gospel, it really helped me kind of get my head around this struggle. I wonder if you're struggling with that, too. And um, didn't really know that that was something that, like, maybe isn't a common thing. But people really responded really positively to me being a little bit vulnerable in appropriate ways in the pulpit. And what one person said to me is they said, um, you don't preach at us, you preach with us. You don't preach down to us, you preach across to us. Yeah. And I try to do that too, because I think it's so important. You know, I remember when we got to seminary and I would look at some of the people that were in our classes and I'm thinking, gosh, if they're going to be priests, where do I fit into this? Because, you know, I feel so human. I feel like someone messes up. And what I have learned, and I think you are very similar in the same way, that it takes all kinds of people to be priests, but also that God's people react to people that are human and admit their faults and admit the things that they want to work on and admit the things that they're not perfect at, you know? I have done better, I think, in my ministry because I have been vulnerable. And I know that that's been the case for you as well. Yes. And one of the theological backbones of my life is the incarnation, the belief that God became human. Absolutely. Because there was something in this that God wanted to experience in order for God to really like know our pains so that when I pray to God, God isn't like the sky daddy or whatever, but like, it's like, I know I get it. I did that. And so When we think about humanity, first of all, no one in the Bible was called into ministry who wasn't a human, right? Like it's just, it's, it's a whole book, Great Great. Norton anthology of humanity. Right. And, And so I think that, that I have personally found a lot of, um, positive feedback and people saying that was really helpful for me. And so, you know, when you're helping the people in your sermons, that's where you keep moving. And, and I certainly wanted and and continue to want to try to offer that in the work that I do today. And, you know, to get back to the story. Yes. I was about to say, let's get, go where we, yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm ADHD. We're going to go where the spirit calls. Um, (laughs) But I, but it was this really interesting state of speaking of ministry, you know, being called into that next call and um, moving to Oklahoma to take on my rectorship. But I had been dealing with the question of my relationship with alcohol for years. 
And I share that because I think sometimes we think it's kind of like a, gosh, I've got to quit drinking and I'm never going to quit drinking again. And Mm -hmm. for me, it was a really slow unfolding discernment. Mm -hmm. It was an inkling. It was, you know, like I said, experiences where my drinking was normative um, and fine and not problematic. And then experiences where my drinking was harmful to me. And then also experiences where my drinking was, um, like normative and harmful to me. Right. And so, so managing that, that thing and like giving up alcohol for Lent as a way to like try it on and see how that would go. Um, but finally back and forth and back and forth, uh, I like to say, cause it's true that I quit a million times out of Mm self-hatred and then I finally quit out of love for myself and love for God and a desire I wanted to experience the Holy Spirit. I didn't want to be numb to my life anymore. Um, I, I didn't want to wait on a rock bottom. I was like, what if while I'm I'm actually doing okay, I chose to change this part of my life? And um, it has been incredibly resurrection experienced for me. I feel like I had a resurrection experience. And... I want to I want to pause because I'm talking a lot, but my calling into the ministry was also explicitly um, church based. So, no. do you have any thoughts before I keep moving? No, I just was sitting there thinking, like, I, I, I just your bravery, first of all, is amazing, and I know you, and I've been around you, and to be, and it's no surprise to me that that you would take the time to think about this and pray about this and be in relationship with God and go. I don't want to hit rock bottom. Like I, and, and I think people of faith haven't have an end when it comes to stuff like that, because that's within us. We know God, we know that God knows every inch of us. Right. And that we, there's something in us that goes, okay, let's stop. Let's, let's figure this out. And holding both the tensions of being in ministry and struggling with this must have been incredibly difficult. I would imagine. So, yes. And also because, you know, and I don't want it to take up a massive amount of our time, but church is the hardest place I could imagine sobriety. Um, We have an alcohol culture in the Episcopal Church. And, um, you know, I did a lot of things sober for the first time. And like some of the hardest things I did sober for the first time was like go to an Episcopal conference sober for the first time. And I was able to do it, but, but it was really hard and be better at that, Erin. We really do. And I, I, the diocese I'm in, I can see changes in that, like policies that are put together and, you know, clergy conference should not be about how much bourbon people can drink. And I mean, I had an event at my house the other night and there was wine here, but I made sure that there was lots of other things here, you know, as well. And that that's not the only culture that we pushed, right? So Yes. And part of what I'm seeing is people who are already doing the change, but some people are reading the book and saying, okay, how do we get a little bit more compassionate to this? And you know, the sensitivity around what you're saying about being a rector and or being a leader in the church at all is really part of why I ended up feeling called to to talk about my sobriety. Um, I joke in the book that like the reason I'm talking about my sobriety is because God is not respecting my boundaries because I had really decided I wasn't going to talk about it. I was like, I'm going to get sober. I was like four months sober. I was I was doing well. And I was like, this doesn't have to be the thing 
right? Right. Um, but I was invited. God has different plans for you. I know. God is laughing at me. Um, but like, obviously we don't want the thing to be the thing, right? When the thing is this, you know, sensitive, but I, I was invited to preach the clergy renewal of vows service in the diocese of Oklahoma, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it's when all the clergy from the diocese get together during Holy Week and there's a preacher, which I was invited to preach and we all renew our vows in the ministry. And I was super honored by the invitation. And I was like, yeah, of course I'll say yes to that. Um, But between the invitation to preach and getting into the pulpit, two of my priest friends had been removed from ministry because of their relationship with alcohol. Mm. And I was privately sober and really, really excited to stay privately sober. And yet I was discerning the question of, like, I have have my pain for my friends. I have my own private sobriety. And then I have the question, what do, what is God asking me to say in front of a room full of clergy? Yeah. And I wrote three sermons. Two of them were garbage. Like, I think I would have shamed Seminary of the Southwest and everyone who went there because they were so bad. And I finally wrote the sermon about my sobriety and it fell out of me. I mean, it was... So that was the moment, Erin, when you released it to the world was at the renewal. So let me just tell you, listeners, this is such a big deal because the people that are sitting in the seats, they're not your parishioners. They're your colleagues. Oh my gosh. What a moment. What a moment. And, and, you know, preach the sermon. So, so literally, first time I ever talked about my sobriety was in a cathedral pulpit in front of the entire diocese of Oklahoma, like all the clergy. Uh, but I also wanted to tell my story on my own terms, because I think we have a lot of assumptions we make around things like that. And so I left the cathedral. I went to a coffee shop. I put it on social media. And then I had to drive about an hour and a half to get home. And when I got home, my DMs had flooded. And suddenly, all of these people were like, I didn't know anyone else in my life was like questioning this. Or people who were also secretly sober were like DMing me and being like, oh my gosh, I'm sober too, you know? Or people were asking for help. They were like, how did you get there? Like, what did you do to get there? And it was the moment that the ministry part of this was born, that I realized so many people needed support. And so I started DMing and I essentially started doing a lot of coaching and DMs, but felt called to, to, you know, really get trained in it and not just sort of be armchair coaching people. And so that's when I left ministry uh, in the sense of parish ministry to work at a um, startup company where I worked as a recovery coach and um, worked under the clinical director. So I got some of the the trainings around trauma and um, I am not a clinician, but worked under a clinician, which was really nice. I launched my own practice um, about two years ago. Well, so, okay, I want to stop you there because I think it's important. We talked about this a little bit before we hit record. It's important. There, Aaron is still a priest, will always be a priest, will always live into those vows. But there are lots of ways to be a priest. I think people look at that and they think it's, you know, running a church like Alan and I do. Yeah. But lots of different ways. And so... um, I just feel like God, just like the Holy Spirit, God, just like put this on you and this is your ministry now. So talk about what that looks like 
not serving in a church on every Sunday, but where where God has led you into ministry now and still as a priest, you know, which is really cool. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, in my story, I did a lot of parish ministry, which I think only makes me stronger in the capacity I'm in now. Because a lot of my ministry now, um, first of all, I do consider recovery coaching to be ministry. Um, it It is not always explicitly with Christians, but uh, our ministry should not always be to Christians. Like we don't exist in service to only our people. We're like to the world, right? Yeah, exactly. They're all my people. All people are my people. Um, but that's part of it. I also am a spiritual director and a lot of people are seeking a spiritual director who understands their path into sobriety. Um, I'm also a writer, obviously, which I consider a part of my ministry. Um, actually, the prayer you opened up with, I'm going to print that and put that up because it was a really nice reminder to me of the way that my ministry exists right now. Like a lot of the different ways that it that was written. Um, it was a real buoy to me to even receive those those words to God today. Um but then also speaking, I've, I've really loved retreat leading and visiting because one of the things that that I'm very compassionate toward with you and Alan is like sometimes the rector can't be the person. Sorry, my cat. Uh, sometimes the rector can't be the person, right? Like you have a full job and you can't take every training imaginable. And so a support to church ministries is having outside people come in. So that you can, first of all, you can receive spiritual care. Like you need to also be receiving that, but also that other people can come in, talk about some of the topics that are really hard for you to initiate. Um, and also a resource to your people. Like when a person comes to you, I mean, one of the things you have to learn as a parish priest, in my opinion, is refer, refer, refer. Absolutely. Like you are not, you are finite. And, and thank God other people have different skills, trainings, backgrounds that they can offer to the world so that you can say, oh my gosh, you know what? Let's do a retreat on that and get you some support around that. Or let me connect you to Aaron. And so I think of myself as also being a support to the clergy in their programming and yeah. um, the person who can come in and do some things to take some weight off of the priest. Like when I come in and guest preach, that's a Sunday you're not writing a sermon, which we need those breaks and we need to receive sermons as well. And so you're figuring out how I can get you to South Carolina. I um, would love to come to South Carolina because yeah. I just, I do believe, you know, I want to be a support to individuals. I want to be a support to churches. That is, you know, such a big part of my identity as a priest and my priesthood looks different, but it is still deeply desiring of church. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. The last thing I really want to ask you about. So you felt very called to write this book, Sober Spirituality, and it's out. And I'm telling y'all, everybody go read it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But now that it's out in the world, how does that feel? Tell me about that. It's weird. So everyone has asked this question, which because it's a good question. And I ask the same thing of my author friends. I mean, one thing that I'm learning is like release of control because up until April 18th, which is when the book came out, I had control over it. Right. Um, my editors had read it. My endorsers had read it. I had like, I knew everyone who had ever read it. Like I could have a list of people who read it. Right. Now you can something happens and it's released into the world. And I think, you know, spiritually it's a good practice 
to release something into the world. And, and my prayer is that it will find the people it is meant to find. I also did not write it thinking I had fixed this or out of the hubris of being like, and now I've told you everything you need to know. It, it's not going to be for some people. And it's actually okay for our work to just be for who it's for. Like there are other people who offer gifts that I can't give. And I hope that their work finds the people they're meant to find. So the spiritual practice for me of just being like, I trust that God will lead this into the hearts of those who need to receive it. And if some people receive it and it's not for them, that's okay. Yeah. Well, and I also think, um, we discussed this a little bit, but like there definitely needs to be more work done around this, not just in the Episcopal church, but in the world. Um, You know, I know that just in my own parish, I have more than both hands, fingers that I can count of people that have struggled or are struggling with this specific topic, but also like so many topics that are toxic to who we are and the things that we do to hurt our bodies or hurt our minds or, hurt our relationship with God. And so I just am really grateful that you did this. Um, I'm grateful that people will have a chance to be able to say, there is a woman who is a priest who has faith in God that struggles with the same thing I yes. struggle with. That, Erin, is the best gift you could give the world. And I am so grateful for that and your ministry, my friend. And that was my timer. So here we go, Erin. Thank you for your time with us. Listeners, remember, as always, we love you, but most importantly, God does. Amen. Amen.